Does Speaker Kevin McCarthy have the votes? The lead starts right now. A critical vote possibly just minutes away as Speaker McCarthy pushes House Republicans to sign off on his, his grand debt limit plan. I'll speak with one GOP holdout about McCarthy's last-minute offers. And clemency requests denied. The parole board votes against sparing the life of Oklahoma death row inmate Richard Glossop. Glossop's attorney joins the lead along with the state Republican trying to help save the inmate's life. Plus, Disney versus DeSantis. The major new lawsuit from the House of the Mouse accusing the Florida governor of weaponizing his political power. Welcome to The Lead, everyone. I'm Bianca Goladriga in for Jake Tapper today. We start the day with our politics lead. Do they have the votes? Right now, House Republicans are in the middle of last-minute negotiations as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy tries to get his party's debt ceiling plan across the finish line. We expect that vote to start in just minutes. Now, McCarthy has zero Democratic support, and he can only lose four Republicans, a narrow margin that forced him to make some 11th-hour concessions. But here's the tough reality. Even if McCarthy can get this bill across that finish line, it is dead on arrival in the Democratic-controlled Senate. And the U.S. keeps ticking even closer to its first-ever debt default, which would, of course, wreak havoc on the U.S. economy. I want to bring in CNN's Phil Mattingly, who is at the White House, and CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. A busy day for both of you. Manu, let's start with you. Speaker McCarthy has been meeting with holdouts, I know, all day. At this point, does he have the votes necessary? Uh, the leadership is confident that they will get the votes, but Biana, this will be incredibly close. It's expected to be a razor-thin majority to get this over the finish line. There are several members who are holding out, some who are flatly opposed, like Tim Burchett of Tennessee. And as you mentioned, he cannot lose more than four Republican votes. But McCarthy has succeeded in flipping some votes, adding some changes to provide ethanol tax breaks that won over some Midwestern lawmakers, including from Iowa, making some changes in the Medicaid requirements to win over some hard right members and also winning over Congresswoman Nancy Mace, who had some concerns for some time about the plan's failure to completely balance the budget. But she said she got some commitments from the speaker to take on that issue in the future. So your, your critics would say that, you know, you, you talked a big game here, but then you got rolled by the leadership. How I haven't would you gotten say? rolled yet by the leadership on anything. So, um, negotiating this and meeting with him. I was going to be a no or a yes. Uh, I could go either way on this, but having my voice heard on this issue was very important and getting a commitment from him to work with us on this was very important uh, to us because otherwise my vote, my, otherwise I was going to be a no. What has to happen next? Well, I mean, listen, that's why we should always be talking. E even, even if those talks, you know, are not productive, you know, they've got to start finding where areas that they, they might agree on. And that last comment from Jared Moskowitz, a freshman Democrat from Florida who is voicing concerns among some moderate Democrats over the lack of discussions between the White House and Speaker McCarthy. McCarthy has been calling for those talks. The White House has said absolutely not. They will not negotiate raising the national debt limit, saying that there should not be any cuts to that tide whatsoever. But the question will be whether Democrats will continue to stick to the White House's position, especially as we move closer to going over that cliff, which could occur as early as June, potentially the first ever U.S. debt default. Yeah, potentially yeah. just weeks away. And Phil, given what Manu has said, how closely is the White House watching this unfold now, given that, that it has signaled that it is not planning to negotiate with Republicans at all? 
on this issue. Yeah, Bianca, they've been watching very closely. And look, there's been a lot of skepticism inside the building behind me that Kevin McCarthy could actually wrangle 218 votes to get anything across the finish line. And clearly, as Manu and the Hill team have reported, it has been quite an effort to get there. And yet they are making clear here at the White House that it is an effort all for naught. There has been some thought, and there's some precedent here, particularly in negotiations like this, where what Speaker McCarthy is doing will kind of unlock, provide some leverage to start negotiations, to start the talks. Well, if that is his plan, this was the president's response today when asked about it. Take a listen. Happy to meet with McCarthy, but not on whether or not the debt limit gets extended. That's not negotiable. I noticed they quote Reagan and they quote, they quote Reagan all the time and they quote Trump, both of which said, it's just, I'm paraphrasing, it would be an absolute crime to not extend the debt limit. President Bianca making clear there's no shift in their position right now. Manu hits at a key point. That position holds so long as Democrats stick together and stay united on Capitol Hill. White House officials making clear they want to maintain that position, working behind the scenes to ensure that that stays the case. But it also raises the question, what happens next? What happens now? And right now, there doesn't seem to be a great answer to it. Yeah, so far, Democrats are united on this issue. We'll be watching closely. Phil Mattingly, Manu Raju, thank you. And joining me now to discuss is Republican Congresswoman Victoria Sparts of Indiana. Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us. So I know you were undecided on how you would vote earlier today. At this point, have you made up your mind? I have, and I'll be open-minded. But I'll be honest with you, it's very unfortunate that we have grandstanding and not willing to have a serious conversation what's happening with our spending and debt. We did it after World War I, where Congress actually you know, decided to took seriously this issue. And now we are not doing that. And we have some bipartisan issues. Unfortunately, that President Biden is not willing to have discussion on issues like such neutrality, which is fraudulent overbilling by large monopolies of Medicare to save it for seniors, which President Biden and President Trump supported. And bipartisan think tanks are supporting that. Why couldn't we actually move the needle and to show American people that we have a backbone to challenge like special interest group and challenge the Senate? I think Senate is so broken and this is our chance and we are not doing it in a bipartisan way. And I am disappointed, but I think we need to have conversation and I'll see if I want to just have the conversation forward and make decisions further, but I, I do not like what's happening right now. Well, Congresswoman, I should just point out that the president has said and Democrats have said they would be open to any budget discussions and negotiations, but that would be separate and that they want to see happen what has happened in the past. And that is raising the debt ceiling with a clean bill. That is what their predecessors had done. So why not do that? Why not have a separate path for budget negotiations? And on this point, given the, the seriousness of it and the consequences of not raising the debt ceiling, just do that first. I hate to say, but I have a very low confidence as most American people in, in the capability of this institution to do anything if it's not a must-pass situation. We actually have, you know, two-thirds of our spending is mandatory, automatic, and 80% of discretion is spending is unauthorized by Congress. It means that over 90% of spending we even don't make any positions on. I mean, this is a reckless disregard of our duties to this republic. And it's unfortunate that the only way we can actually can push the Senate is if we would do it as a part of this discussion, because we need to make sure that we pay our bills, but we need to make sure that we don't burden our children, don't destroy programs that we promised to seniors and give money to big special interest groups that get in wealthy and a lot of billionaires and oligarchs and oligopolis.
So you have a lot of doubts, a lot of questions, a lot of skepticism, but I do want to know where your vote will be, given that the voting will begin within just 40 minutes or so. Are you a yes or a no on, on Speaker McCarthy's bill right now? I will see where the vote is going to be. I'll be honest with you, I would prefer not to vote for this bill. If I have to vote just reluctantly to move this discussion, I might do it and see where it's going to land at the end. But I hope that my Democrat colleagues will start really talking with us seriously because we can only save a lot of this program if we have a bipartisan conversation about fraud and abuse in the system. And what is the cost is that it's not going to win the people because there is no lobby to fool with the people in Washington, D.C., unfortunately. Yeah, this is coming down to the wire, it looks like, for you, and it's reminiscent of your vote of present back a few months ago in the speakership fight for Kevin McCarthy. And we knew that we know that that took 15 votes. Does your hesitancy reflect any sort of doubts you have in his role as speaker right now? Listen, he has a very difficult job, but it is a big test for him. You know, leaders are tested in a tough situation. So ultimately, you know, the final judgment will be when he come back with, come back with a final, you know, resolution of this. And that will decide what he's able to do. And uh, I think it's good that he's trying to deal with some of these issues. And I hope the other side will start care what's happening in the country, because this is very destructive for our economy and also unpredictability creates an uncertainty creates a lot of problems for our businesses and for the people. And we need to start dealing, we need to start governing people really in a real need. And we disagree on a lot of issues, but let's find common ground and move forward this country. It's extremely important for safety and security of our people in our country. All right, Republican Congresswoman Victoria Sparts, uh, we'll see what you end up doing in just a few minutes. Thank you so much for your time right now. And ahead, drama on another House floor, this time in Montana, as Republicans vote just moments ago to censure a transgender state lawmaker who they say violated their rules on decorum. Plus, the new terrorism charges against Alexei Navalny today, despite the outspoken Putin critic already being behind bars. And E. Jean Carroll on the witness stand, her chilling testimony today accusing Donald Trump of defamation and rape. That's ahead. In the National League, just moments ago, Montana state lawmakers voted to censure Democratic State Representative Zoe Zephyr, the state's first openly transgender legislator. Republican lawmakers punished Zephyr because they claim she violated rules of decorum when she criticized the legislature for a bill that would ban transition-related medical care for minors. Okay. And we're going to go to Lucy Kaffenoff now with the latest on this development. She joins us by phone. Lucy, what happened as a result of the censure? Yeah, Bianna, this vote literally just happened. It was a two-thirds of vote. It passed uh, the lawmakers, the majority Republican lawmakers in the Montana House, uh, just passed a motion to effectively block uh, Representative Zoe Zephyr for, from participating in person in the rest of the session. She is not allowed to be in the House floor or the gallery. She will be able to vote remotely. Uh, but this is all uh, the culmination of uh, several days of, of a standoff, effectively, between the, the Republicans uh, in the Montana State House and Representative Zoe Zephyr, the first openly transgender lawmaker. Uh, this began on April 18th when the lawmaker uh, Zephyr was criticizing uh, a bill to uh, limit access to gender-affirming care for, for minors, and she accused her colleagues of having blood on their hands uh, for voting in favor of this legislation. Uh, she then, since then, had been blocked from speaking on the floor 
Uh, on Monday, we saw a large group of protesters come out in support of her outside of the state capitol. They then entered the gallery. Uh, there were shouts. Uh, she was blocked from speaking again, and riot police were brought into the uh, House gallery. Seven demonstrators were arrested and released. Uh, when the lawmakers introduced this motion today, they actually cited the disruption on Monday as the reason for pushing this measure through. Um, again, there's just a few days left in the state uh, legislature. She will be able to vote remotely, but she will not be able to participate in debates or speak on the House floor for the remainder of the session. Diana, Lucy, have we heard from Zephyr today? She did. She, she spoke quite a bit. Um, she, uh, you know, said that the legislature, and I quote, has systematically attacked uh, our community. We have seen bills targeting our art forms, our books, our history, and our health care. She said that she rose up in defense of her community. She said, in defending the, the blood in your hands comments, quote, I was not being hyperbolic. I was speaking to the real consequences of the votes that we as legislators take in this body. And when the speaker asked me to apologize, uh, on behalf of the quorum, what he's really asking me to do is to be silent when her community is facing bills that get us killed. These are her words on the House floor earlier today. She also said that the speaker was asking her to be complicit in this legislature's eradication of the transgender community and that she refuses to do so and that she will always refuse to do so. Biana? All right, Lucy Kavanaugh, will continue to follow this story. Thank you so much for bringing us the latest. Also today, Oklahoma's parole board voted against recommending clemency for death row inmate Richard Glossop, which means Glossop's execution date is still set for May 18th. Now, after the decision, Glossop's attorney released a statement saying, quote, we call on Governor Stitt to grant a reprieve of Richard Glossop's scheduled execution on May 18th, 2023, because the execution of an innocent man would be an irreversible injustice. We will pursue every avenue in the courts to stop this unlawful judicial execution. The 60-year-old has been on death row for more than 24 years now and has narrowly avoided death three times. Glossop was convicted in 1998 of murder for hiring someone to kill his boss. He has always maintained his innocence. And over the past few months, several missteps, such as witness tampering and missing evidence, were uncovered through a report commissioned by state lawmakers. And just a few weeks ago, a special counsel report commissioned by the state's attorney general revealed new evidence and suggested vacating Glossop's murder conviction. But none of that was enough to convince the board to grant clemency. Joining me now is Glossop's attorney, Don Knight, and Republican, Oklahoma Republican State Representative Kevin McDougal. Both attended today's hearing and testified on Glossop's behalf. Welcome, both of you. Uh, Don, let me begin with you. What is your response to the parole board's decision today? It was a shocking decision. Uh, I thought the, the hearing went very well. Uh, I just applaud Attorney General Drummond for standing up and doing what was right and to insist that uh, the, the fact that Mr. Glossop did not get a fair trial be known and that he was supporting a new trial. Uh, there are serious problems with this case. I think now everyone knows that there are serious problems with this case. Even the state admits that Rich Glossop did not receive a fair trial and that his primary accuser the man who actually murdered Barry Van Treese is a liar. And the, despite the fact that all of this was presented today, we had a 2-2 vote. And because one of their members had to recuse and there's no law in Oklahoma that allows that person to be replaced, we were denied an opportunity to get that third vote. It was a very shocking development. Have you spoken to Richard since the board's decision? 
Yes, we talked to Rich, and um, uh, he's he's uh, down but not out. Uh, he, I think he was hoping that you know this would give Governor Stitt a chance to um, to commute his sentence. That's what we were looking for today. That's all they had to do was to say yes. It wasn't to let Rich out or anything like that. It was simply to give the governor the chance to commute his his uh, his execution. And uh, and they, they those two voting members wouldn't even give us that. It's a it's a stunning development, really. But he's Rep- he's he's hurt, um, and and but he's still hopeful. Hey, Representative McDougal, do you now expect the governor to step in? I'm hopeful that he will. I, I went by his office as soon as I got back uh, to request some time with him. He's tied up today. I'm hopeful to get a meeting with him tomorrow. Uh, I'll ask him to do a 60-day stay, which is the only thing he has power to do right now. By state law, he can't uh, do anything other than give a 60-day stay because uh, the Pardon and Parole Board denied his ability to do so. When do you expect that to happen? I I know this just took place and this decision was just passed down a few hours ago, but are you expecting it perhaps even today? Uh, I don't know that he'll decide it that quick. Uh, I know that uh, Don and his team are, are filing paperwork on some other things. Uh, I'm hopeful to get the time with the governor. I think this creates a, or it doesn't create, it actually highlights in Oklahoma, as embarrassing as it is, uh, a systemic problem that we have uh, with some of our DAs. Uh, some of our DAs want you to rubber stamp everything that they do, and they were aggravated and actually had a number of them show up at the hearing today. Uh, And the two members that voted no on the Pardon and Parole Board happen to be district attorneys. Two of the five members on our Court of Criminal Appeals happen to be district attorneys. And uh, they would rather no one look under their hood or no one verify or no one check their cases. Uh, But in this case, it's egregious. The number of things uh, that have gone wrong with this case, so much so that the Attorney General Gettner Drummond, who is very tough on crime, mm-hmm. uh, sided with the defense. Yeah, and he's been siding with the defense for, for a while now, and I know that he was there for this hearing as well. Um, Don, we mentioned how the vote went down to two, that fifth person recusing himself from the vote because his wife had been a prosecutor involved uh, with the case in 2024. How does this conflict of interest even happen? Well, I think Representative McDougall was right. Two of the five uh, were um, were prosecutors, but actually three of the five were prosecutors. Uh, Richard Smotherman was uh, the other voting member uh, placed there by the Oklahoma Supreme Court, and, and he was also a very longtime elected prosecutor. So this board was actually stacked with prosecutors. Uh, we He recused because uh, his wife was the chief prosecutor for Richard Glossop, or against Richard Glossop. So, um, you know, we were we were facing a lot of headwinds going in. Uh, that's why, you know, we knew we were going to need everything. And, you know, I think uh, Attorney General Drummond, uh, Rex Duncan, his uh, independent counsel, the people from Reed Smith, these these uh, independent investigators and what they found was so important to us. It was very difficult for me to understand how when you've got all of these investigators looking at this case, all these people who have nothing to do with my team. They're out there doing this stuff. And yet, uh, you know, these entrenched prosecutors look at this case and just simply won't accept that there can be something new or that maybe something went wrong because we have lots of new evidence that we've been uncovering since 2015. The last trial was in 2004. 
And yet the prosecutors in this state won't look beyond the second trial. It's shocking. Representative, you told CNN in the past that if Glossop is executed, that you will do everything in your power to fight to end the death penalty in the state. Uh, do you still stand by that pledge? One thousand percent. And it's a shame. We need the death penalty in Oklahoma. We need to have a mechanism for people who deserve it. But that bar has got to be set high and it should be set high. And Richard Glossop's case doesn't even come close to meeting that bar. We know for a fact Richard Glossop did not commit the murder. The actual murderer is the one that pointed to Richard Glossop. And the jury never saw the video of how they coerced him to get Richard Glossop's name by mentioning Richard's name six times before Sneed ever mentioned it. There are so many issues with this case. It highlights in Oklahoma the systemic problem that we have. And uh, yes, I will stand against the death penalty and I will stand against the DAs of Oklahoma uh, who believe that uh, they never make mistakes and they just want everyone to rubber stamp and believe that everything they say and do is clear and that we should just approve them to put people to death because they say so. It's, it's egregious. Well, this is a case that has garnered attention nationwide. We, of course, have been covering it extensively and will continue to do so. Don Knight and Representative Kevin McDougal, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Bianna. And still ahead, Disney is taking on DeSantis. Now, the new lawsuit from the House of Mouse could threaten the political future of the Florida governor. In the politics lead, the happiest place on earth is headed to court. Disney today filed a lawsuit against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his political allies, alleging that they have violated its federal constitutional rights. CNN Steve Contorno is with us now with the latest. So, Steve, what does this Disney allege in this lawsuit and has DeSantis responded yet? Well, Bianca, in this 77-page lawsuit, Disney essentially says that over the course of the past year, DeSantis has engaged in a revenge campaign against them in a violation of their constitutional rights. Let me read you exactly what they wrote because it is pretty striking what this lawsuit says. They write, Disney regrets that it has come to this, but the company is left with no choice but to file this lawsuit to protect its cast members, guests, and local development parties from a relentless campaign to weaponize government power against Disney in retaliation for expressing a political viewpoint unpopular with certain state officials. And this, the Disney is now asking a judge to essentially step in and say DeSantis' attempts to take over its special taxing district in Central Florida were an illegal uh, uh, retaliation against the company and that this action should be null and void. Now, DeSantis' board met today. They actually took action to say Disney's agreements were null and void. We also had a statement released from DeSantis' office shooting back at Disney saying, quote, we are unaware of any legal right that a company has to operate its own government or maintain special privileges not held by other businesses in the state, Bianna. This is getting really ugly and has been for some time now. We also know that GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley has weighed into this fight today. What did she say? That's right. She was on Fox News today where she uh, criticized DeSantis and sort of welcomed Disney to her state. And then she posted this on Twitter. Hey, Disney, my home state will happily accept your 70,000 plus jobs if you want to leave Florida. We've got great weather, great people, and it's always a great day in South Carolina. South Carolina is not woke. 
but we're not sanctimonious about it either. And this is part of a trend that we are now seeing of DeSantis's potential 2024 rivals uh, using this, as, seizing this to criticize the governor and create a wedge between him and GOP voters. Uh, governor Christie uh, over the week has also went, gone after DeSantis on this. We've seen Governor Hutchinson, Governor Sununu, even President Donald Trump. So DeSantis and Disney is really creating an issue for him in the 2024 Republican primary that he hasn't even entered in yet. And now headed to the courts. Uh, Steve Contorno, thank you. In Missouri tomorrow, transition-related medical care for transgender people could be nearly impossible to obtain, and not just for minors, but for anyone. This move by Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey would make his state the first to ban this type of health care for adults. Now, right now, 11th-hour efforts in court to stop these new rules are underway. CNN's Kyung La has been speaking with patients who are scrambling to figure out what comes next. We're hoping to get as many people established for care as possible because we're really feeling that deadline. I'll be doing your intake today. And the clock is ticking. For patients like 19-year-old Kari, a Missouri resident crossing state lines to Kansas because of the battle over gender-affirming care. How long have you not felt like you? I was like 14 is when I first was like... You are not correct. Now, some of the side effects of testosterone are permanent. All patients in this Planned Parenthood clinic today are beginning gender transitions. A pop-up clinic to beat the deadline set by Missouri's attorney general in an emergency rule. Established patients could continue care once the order goes into effect. But new patients face a slew of requirements that would widely limit access. It's why Kari is here before the state-imposed deadline. How do you view this executive order? I've, I view it as someone is afraid of something, so they're trying to er eradicate people. We are terrified. I've been afraid since I was like 15. And the world is terrifying. It's talk with us. Like, just sit there and talk, listen to what, what we're saying. We're not trying to indoctrinate anyone. We're just saying, hey, this is us. In another exam room, 20-year-old Andy who moved up a May appointment to beat the impending order. Why is it important for you to have access to this care? It's a constant disconnect from my own body, my own being. I look in the mirror. I feel like an imposter, a stranger. I always have. I'm going through a personal journey now and hopefully can start to feel comfortable in my own skin and maybe feel like I recognize the person in the mirror. Um, after I start to see these changes. Across Missouri, advocates say it's uncertainty and panic among patients. This is Angela. I'm calling from Planned Parenthood. Angela Huntington is a patient navigator for Planned Parenthood. I was just calling to confirm your appointment. For Scheduling patients across Missouri. I think we have a fight. I think we have a fight in front of us. What kind of pain are you hearing on the other side of the phone line? I've got patients calling me from all over Missouri that are just scared. They just don't know where they're going to get their care. Especially in a shifting battleground of politics and legal orders, say the doctors and nurses. You want to believe people when they tell you who they are or what they want for their life. And you don't want to say, well, you know, I believe you that you are transgender, but maybe we should phone your local politician to see if they agree. It's hard not to feel like your local politician is in the room with you. So next what I'm going to do is go over some screening questions with you. Kari established gender-affirming care in this visit. Rejected by some family members, Kari says he fled Tennessee a year ago and is ready to move again, unsure of what happens next in Missouri. 
can't, I can't live in any state that won't let me be who I am. I have a 24-hour plan of, well, if they do this, you have to leave in those 24 hours. Like, clothes already packed up in the trunk type things. It makes me feel like a refugee in my own state, <laughs> in my own country. Kari, Andy, and other Missouri patients are actually waiting for the outcome of a hearing that is happening as we speak, Biana. This hearing is to hear a lawsuit that's been filed by the ACLU of Missouri and Lambda Legal. The attempt here is to try to stop this emergency rule from going into effect. If this lawsuit fails, it goes into effect at the stroke of midnight. And what's happening, Biana, at these clinics behind me, they're seeing their very last new patients before the rule goes into effect. Biana. Yeah, we saw some of that in that very powerful piece. Thank you so much, Kyungla. And next, lawyers for Hunter Biden at the Justice Department and only CNN captured their arrival. The investigation leading to this meeting about the president's son. That's ahead. First on CNN, lawyers for Hunter Biden met with Justice Department officials today. The president's son is under federal investigation for tax evasion. CNN's Paula Reed joins me now with more on this. So, Paula, what more do we know about this meeting and who was there? Well, we know this was a meeting between some of Hunter Biden's criminal defense attorneys and top Justice Department officials. Now, our colleagues Eileen Grafe and Steve Williams caught that exclusive video. There you can see one of Hunter Biden's attorneys, Chris Clark, along with some of his associates entering that building, which is the Justice Department headquarters in Washington. And on Friday, we broke the story that there would be a meeting between these two sides. And that is significant because there has not been a public development in this criminal investigation into the president's son in nearly a year. Now, I've learned that this meeting was requested by Hunter Biden's attorneys. They're seeking an update on the status of the case. The Justice Department said, sure, come on in. And they set a date. Now, we're told today in attendance were representatives from the Justice Department's tax division. And I will note, uh, the tax division currently does not have a politically appointed chief. So that's a career official who's in charge of that division, as well as the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware. And the Trump-appointed U.S. Attorney in Delaware, David Weiss, he stayed on after former President Trump left office to continue overseeing this investigation. So what do you and your sources know about the current status of this criminal investigation? Well, it's interesting how little has changed since our colleague Evan Perez reported last summer the prosecutors had really narrowed down the charges to potentially uh, some tax charges and possibly one false statement charge related to the purchase of a gun and not disclosing his addiction. But then nothing happened for nearly a year. And at this point, it's unclear whether they got any disposition on the case. I was told by sources not to expect one, but we're still reporting out exactly what happened when these two sides met. And of course, at this point, the Justice Department is not commenting. All right, Paula Reed, always on top of it for us. Good to see you on set. Thank you. Well, dramatic testimony from E. Jean Carroll today, who took the stand in her battery and defamation case against Donald Trump. Carroll began her testimony with the statement, I am here today because Donald Trump raped me. Carroll alleges that Trump groped and raped her in a department store dressing room in the mid-1990s. Trump has denied all charges. CNN's Kara Scannell is outside the courthouse. Kara, what else did Carroll say today? Yeah, Bianca, Carol was on the stand today in her case against former President Donald Trump, and she described to the jury in graphic detail just what she says happened to her in the dressing room of Bergdorf Goodman. She said she believed it was a Thursday night in the spring of 1996. 
And she says it began as a flirty encounter. They ran into each other at the door. He said, hey, you're that advice columnist. She said, hey, you're that real estate tycoon. And then he asked her for some advice to buy a gift. She said that they looked at handbags, they looked at hats, and then they made their way to the sixth floor and the lingerie department. She said they were in joking and engaging in some banter about a piece of lingerie, and then Trump moved her into the dressing room. That's when she says things turned violent. She said he shoved her up against the wall. She banged her head. He pulled down her tights, and he raped her. That's what Carol's allegations are. She said since then, the damage to her has been that she has been unable to have any other romantic relationships. She said because when she began a flirty encounter, it landed her in trouble. Now, Carol also testified that she confided in two friends real time. Now, her attorneys plan to call both of those women to testify. She said one of those women advised her not to go public with the story, saying that Trump would bury her. Uh, Now, the lawyers also got to the second piece of this case. That's the defamation claim. And Carol testified that once she went public with this story and Donald Trump denied it, said she wasn't his type, she said she received mountains of hate mail. She said that she lost her job at Elle magazine where she wrote that column and that she even bought bullets for a gun that she had out of fear for her safety. Now, she, her testimony completed today. We're just waiting for her to exit the courthouse behind me. She will be back on the stand tomorrow morning for about another 40 minutes of questioning by her own attorney. And then cross-examination will begin. Trump's lawyers are expected to come out of the gate hard here. They deny that this ever happened. Biana? All right. Keep us posted if she says anything when she leaves that courthouse. Kara Scannell, thank you. And up next, a first today, more than a year after Russia launched its war in Ukraine, as China now appears to play a role of peacemaker. In our world lead, Putin critic Alexei Navalny could face life in prison on new terrorism charges. Today, he appeared on video from his prison cell in a Moscow court for separate charges. Navalny questions how he could have incited a terrorist attack from within his prison cell. Meanwhile, his team thinks his severe stomach issues are the result of being poisoned once again. And now to Ukraine, where China is attempting to position itself as a broker of world peace. For the first time since Russia's brutal invasion last year, China's President Xi Jinping spoke by phone with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. Now, in comparison, President Xi has spoken with Russian President Vladimir Putin at least five times since the invasion, including face-to-face in Moscow last month. Sina's Nick Peyton Walsh is in the southeastern Ukrainian city of Zaporizhia. And Nick, what was discussed on this call? Because regardless of the relationship, it was significant that they finally spoke. Yes, certainly. The Chinese readout of this conversation was that essentially uh, they recognize there's been significant international economic damage and impact from this war. And the only way out is some sort of negotiated settlement. Uh, Zelensky, uh, Ukraine's president, said, well, look, yes, Ukraine would desperately love that paraphrase here, some sort of peace. But he laid down an important condition that essentially Ukraine's 1991 borders would have to be recognized in any meaningful enduring settlement, which essentially means Russia and its proxies have to get out of the Crimean Peninsula and other occupied parts of Ukraine. That's going to be a very hard sell for Moscow to get anywhere near that in this current situation. But it's very important to recognize the timing uh, of when this indeed occurred and the fact that China said they're now appointing a special envoy, uh, a diplomat with a track record of serving as an ambassador in Russia to try and begin the diplomatic process. We're a matter of days, even hours, you might say, or even already into Ukraine's counter-offensive here. And so China perhaps positioning itself for what comes out 
after the clashes we're expecting rather than perhaps influencing them ahead of it. Biana? Yeah, they, they had famously introduced that 12-point peace plan, which seemed to be dead on uh, arrival. Nick, we also know that in the meantime, you're reporting Russian strikes are picking up where you are there in Zaporizhia. What more are you learning? Yeah, as far as we can tell, and all of our reporting here happens under Ukrainian military restrictions, but certainly we've heard a lot of silence, frankly, over the past week or so as Ukraine's counteroffensive is expected to get underway. But in the last 24, 48 hours, we've seen videos like this that show a pinpoint artillery strike on a Russian position and a number of others, too, which have shown Ukraine's forces doing very precise strikes, often on very valuable uh, Russian positions. That along with a push on the east of the Dnipro River, make people feel perhaps that the beginning of this counteroffensive may be underway, or at least that Ukraine wants people to see that publicly. Diana? All right, Nick Payton, Washington, Zaporizhia, Ukraine, once again, as always, doing important reporting for us. Thank you so much. Well, the special counsel investigating the January 6th insurrection now wants access to audio recordings from a former Fox News producer who is suing the network. Let's bring in Wolf Blitzer, who is getting ready in the Situation Room just minutes away. So, Wolf, the attorney for former producer Abby Grossman is Grossberg is joining you today. Tell us more about that. That's right, Biana. The uh, the attorney Jerry Filipatos tells CNN he's in serious discussions right now with the federal special counsel Jack Smith about turning over a trove of recordings made by his client, uh, Abby Grossberg, while she was working at the Right Wing Network. She was a producer for hosts Tucker Carlson and Maria Bartiromo. We're going to press him for details on those recordings and what specifically piqued the interests of the special counsel as he investigates former President Trump and efforts to try to overturn the 2020 presidential election. It's all coming up right here in the Situation Room at the top of the hour. Biana. As always, we'll be watching Wolf Blitzer. Thank you. And up next, why the Memphis Zoo had to give up a giant panda today and put it on a plane back to China. China is taking back what was once a gift on loan to the U.S., a giant panda named Yaya. She's on a plane right now back to Shanghai. For 20 years, Yaya has lived at the Memphis Zoo in Tennessee. But when her male counterpart died back in February, images began circulating on Chinese social media saying that Yaya looked unwell and emaciated, speculating that she was being abused. But U.S. and Chinese scientists say Yaya has a genetic skin and fur condition and is healthy. Since China is the only known country with pandas in the wild, China loans the animals to other nations as a practice of panda diplomacy. Well, our coverage continues right now with Wolf Blister in the Situation Room. Thanks so much for watching. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. 
It could be used on an upcoming episode.